The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, close your girly mag and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 561 with guest David Miller, recorded live Tuesday, March 18, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now... The man without whom this show would weigh a hell of a lot less, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Richard and I are here for you for the next hour. Hey, Richard. Sir. You, sir, are an unknown USB device driver. (laughs) That is about the worst insult you can lob at somebody. There you go. Yeah, that's pretty mean. I saw that on a t-shirt the other day. I saw another one that says, please help, firewall burnt down, lost packet. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) What about the one that said, go away or I shall replace you with a small PowerShell script? A very small PowerShell script. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Now go away. It makes me happy. Now go away or I shall taunt you a second time. Very nice. Got to do a little Monty Python once in a while. Hey, let's uh, get into Better Know Framework. Start off right here. Listen to All that right. crazy music. Love it. Stupid, crazy, stupid music. Can't take it away now. Everybody loves it. I know. Well, I'm going to revisit an oldie but a goodie here on oh. Better Know Framework because if you missed it, uh, it's a shame. It's one of those really important things if you're doing any com interrupt, if you're creating any com objects and those com objects have state, and then you want to blow them away and create new com objects. Okay. You can't just simply set a com object to nothing or null. Well, you uh, can, but you, it doesn't work. Well, it does work, but it you're what you're doing is you're taking the proxy and nullifying that, stranding the com object over in the unmanaged world. Right. So if you really want to get rid of a com object, you have to do uh, system.runtime.interopservices dot marshal dot release com object nice yes you do have to do that and uh you know it's old it's old stuff but man i tell you 
There's so many people that are just getting into .NET, and they don't know this stuff. That's true. And COM is just not going away. It's just not going anywhere. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Some days we wish it would. Office is no longer COM, then I'll believe we're getting past it. Yeah. There's so many many more people that built business objects on COM, and, you know, they... It still works, you know. There's yeah, nothing. It, it absolutely does. Inherently wrong with it. It's just reference counted and not garbage collected. So, right. Richard, who's talking to us today? I have a great email. The subject line is Anders Hart's closure. Maybe he just doesn't know it yet. <laughs> hey guys, first of all, thanks for all the great shows. Your podcast really helps me understand how much I don't know. Show five. 41 with Anders Halsberg had some excellent content. Something struck me when you guys were talking about the language features that are needed to do parallelism correctly. You were describing a language that already exists. Closure. And that's closure mm. with a J. I'm no expert on closure, not even close, but from what I do know of it, its features list includes, but is not limited to, the following. One, data is immutable by default. Two, It is mostly functional, but not totally pure, so you can actually do useful stuff with it. Three, Mm. it supports polymorphism, but not in the OO way. Mm. And four, it uses, Carl, make sure you're sitting down. I'm sitting down. Software transactional memory to deal with the stuff that you have to make mutable. Well, uh, it's very, very fitting that you read that email, because I've got a lot of questions about that. He goes on to say, I'm thinking maybe you guys should have Rich Hickey or David Miller on the show to discuss Clojure and Clojure CLR. Rich invented Clojure, and David is working on the CLR implementation, and he pointed to the Google group for Clojure. And uh, keep up the good work. Luke Ropke from Yorktown Heights, New York. What do you think? Should we do that? No, we shouldn't. We should, there, there's no way we're ever going to get David Miller on our show. I can't imagine. I don't, I don't, we'll do what we can do, but, you know, it's only so much we can do. But I'll send you a mug anyway, Luke. Thanks for your great email. And you can get a mug, too. Send us an email, .net rocks at franklins.net. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, our guest today is David Miller. Uh, we're talking about uh, Closure CLR. David has been on the faculty of DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois, since 1981, and has served as dean of DePaul's College of Computing and Digital Media since 2005. He's programmed as a consultant over the years. His most recent projects include developing a website for microfinancing business loans in Haiti. And that's a, a Z-A-F-E-N dot org, which is a Ruby on Rails site, and porting closure to the CLR. Welcome, David. Thank you. How do you pronounce that? Zafen or Zafen? Zafen. Zafen? Which is a Haitian Creole for it's our business. Oh, that's great. Was this before or after the earthquake? We started before the earthquake. Um, It's actually a project of the Worldwide Vincentian family. Uh, DePaul University is part of the St. Vincent DePaul group. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. and they were looking to for ways to celebrate the 350th anniversary of the death of St. Vincent. And they already had projects in Haiti. So we started discussing it last summer. And uh, obviously the earthquake came along uh, since then. We're not really, we're not, we're not designing it for, you know, disaster relief. It was designed to do fundraising, to do microfinancing for business projects in Haiti. And obviously they have even more need for it now. 
Yeah, I just wonder how well even small businesses are going to function with the, basically the infrastructure of the country destroyed. Well, there wasn't a lot of great infrastructure to begin with down there. Uh, <laughs> true. So, no, true. I mean, these people managed to survive and survive well. One of the biggest problems in Haiti is the fact that there's so much corruption and so on. And one of the advantages we have there is we have a very good um, banking partner who called uh, Fankaze, who's very well respected down there. They do uh, micro banking also uh, and serve uh, a lot of uh, communities in Haiti that don't otherwise have any banking facilities. And they're the ones that are out vetting the actual projects, making sure they're viable businesses, making sure they'll have a chance to uh, repay the loans and uh, make sure that you know they'll spend the money wisely. So with them as a partner, we actually have some, some street cred in Haiti and people who we'll have a little more confidence in uh, actually giving money down there and hoping to see some of it come back. Well, I would love to talk about this more because I'm, it's very interesting to me. Richard and I have talked about sort of the microloan thing, um, but uh, there it has its critics too because a lot of the, you know, you look at what has been done with microloans in Africa, let's say, and um, not not a lot of businesses flourish. Like a lot of them are still failing. So, Makes you wonder what you know. What what's really happening is are they getting money from loan sharks to pay back their microloans? What's going on? Do you have have you seen successes? Well, we, the, the project's only been up uh, live since April first, so we're just now starting to get money out in the hands of the, of the business projects. Mm-hmm. Um, one one of the things is these all really have to be viable businesses. These are mostly not absolutely new startups. They're people who need financing that they can't otherwise get in order right. to. To improve their um, operation, to be able to hire more people, to be able to add equipment. Uh, some of the concerns down there have to do with uh, environmental mm. conditions. So, for example, there is a project down there to make uh, equipment of charcoal briquettes, but not using wood since uh, mm. the devastation of the forest down there is significant, but to use uh, scraps and things like coconut husks and so forth. They need particular types of kilns and other kinds of equipment. Um, they have a business already. It's running. This just enables them to expand capacity and hire more people. And I got to think having your local banking guy on the ground there is the key to all this, that he actually knows these people, knows the work they're doing, can see the value uh, of their, their business. Yeah. The, the, the consultant, the analysts go out first and just, you know, make sure there's somebody there and that the, the business, you know, has bona fides to, to, to be giving loans to in the first place. And then they do will follow up at uh, at various points throughout the, the process and uh, make sure the money gets repaid. Most of them will be uh, given several months to get the donations on the website, and then the money goes gets dispersed to the company. And then at a certain point, uh, within a few months, uh, the, the loans are all designed to be repaid uh, within 12 months. So is the thing effectively then self-sustaining? The money comes back into the system and gets loaned out again? Yes, that, that's the hope. Uh, it, it should be self-sustaining. It's possible b- both to do loans and and contribute and uh, donations. So some projects it makes more sense to have donations. We have uh, projects down there, for example, for scholarships. For fifty dollars, you can send a student to a school for a year, essentially. Wow. Right. Buy all buy all the equipment they need. Wow. So those are pure donations. They don't expect that money to be paid back. So a lot of the uh, sites are loan only doing this kind of thing. This one will do both loans and donations. Well, it sounds fascinating. I wish you a lot of luck with that. Um, 
We should uh, talk a little about about Closure CLR, and you know, maybe even before we do that, since this is a .NET show, maybe a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with Closure for Java, or or not Closure for Java, but Closure in general as a language. Tell us, tell us what it is. Well, it's first of all, um, I, I, I'd say it's, it's founded on four fundamental ideas. One of which is, first of all, it, it is a Lisp. It, it comes from the Lisp family and builds on tremendous amount of experience we have, 50 years' experience in, in working with Lisps. Um, it's designed to be a functional language um, with uh, an emphasis. It, it's not a pure functional language like um, you know Haskell and some of the other languages, but is uh, designed to uh, emphasize functional programming techniques, and, and that's very important for the next part, which is concurrency. How do you uh, use it to help build uh, highly concurrent opera, uh, applications without having to resort to a lot of locking and other kinds of analysis that that leads to. And finally, it's a hosted language. It sits on top of some type of virtual machine. The basic closure, uh, the, the, the original one, is, is built on top of the JVM, and uh, I've been working on porting it to the CLR. The language was um, designed by Rich Hickey, and uh, he's been doing, I think, a phenomenal job in stewarding this language and knowing what to leave out, which is very important in building languages, but mm. uh, also knowing how to make all these pieces fit together. What is the, what's the thing about Clojure that makes it so unique? Well, why, why yet another language? Well, be, because there's always a need for another language. We don't have I mean, what, what, what am I going to do next year if there's not another language? <laughs> I was just thinking, as he is a professor, you know. <laughs> right, it keeps me in business. We thrive I mean, on no idea how many I've taught over the years. Um, I, I think, you know, if you, if you were to talk to Rich, he would tell you that he got very frustrated trying to write highly concurrent programs in Java and .NET and other, other platforms. Mm-hmm. And so he really sat down and looked at, uh, you know, a lot of ideas that could be brought together uh, to simplify this process. And I think one of the things about Clojure is how all these pieces actually fit well together. Mm. Um, and I, I can, if you want, just go down the list real quickly and sure. sort of give you the pieces. Uh, some of us just like Lisps. Um, I, I, I did my first Lisp programming about 30 years ago and got hooked early on, did AI programming and things like that in it. Um, it you know has a, a minimal surface syntax and uh, allows for syntactic extensibility. Hmm. Uh, the, the ability to have a code represented as data and to be manipulated, and the ability uh, to you know write macros to do metaprogramming to build DSLs and so forth is still something that I don't think many other languages have. Um, it's you know a, dynam- a dynamic language. It's not highly typed. It works very well for mm. building sort of loosely coupled programs. And in, in, uh, in that sense, it, it's built on top of a redeval print loop, so it's very easy to uh, do development in. Mm-hmm. So I think it has a lot of things going for it for for doing this kind of uh, development. Closure is not. Uh, backwards compatible with any other particular Lisp. It's not. It's not common Lisp. Uh, it's not Scheme. It's not any of the other of those flavors. It certainly has a family resemblance to all of those. Um, it's 
added some new syntax for things like uh, vectors and maps and so forth to correspond to probably what's most familiar to people is the, the parenthesis notation for lists. Um, and has added vectors, maps, sets, essentially, as, as first-class objects in the same way that, that lists were. Um, so we can go on and on. I'll talk yeah. maybe a little more later about about some other aspects of lists that make this particularly interesting. Um, the second piece is that it that's, uh, was designed to be functional. Um, I guess older older lists always kind of called themselves functional since you know functions were available as, as uh, first-class objects in the language. But they certainly weren't functional in the more recent sense that, you know, the languages uh, coming out, you know, the MLs and the Haskells and so forth uh, are. Closure is sort of intermediate. It, it emphasizes using pure functions as much as possible. And again, mm. this comes in in a key point when we start talking about concurrency. Uh, but it's also a dynamically typed language, which a lot of the pure functional languages are not. And it's designed right. to sit on top of platforms like, you know, the JVM and, in my case, the CLR for, for doing interop. So those are definitely not pure in any sense underneath it. Right. And uh, like Lisp, it's fairly um, terse in terms of, you know, lots of symbols and parentheses and, uh, you know, difficult to read, in other words. Uh, well, you know, Lisp gets a rap for that, though there, there's some wonderful code examples out there that shows that if you were to look at the number of parentheses in a long string of uh, Java or C-sharp uh, method calls, you end up actually with a very similar list uh, of parentheses count. Um, it's just a question of where you put them. Uh, one thing about uh, closure that some people like, is in addition to the lists, uh, parentheses being used for lists, Rich introduced uh, some other syntactic notations for uh, vectors and and uh, which use brackets and uh, square brackets and um, ha uh, maps and sets which use um, uh, uh, squiggly braces to sort of help relieve the cloud of parentheses uh, visual appearance of the code. So, for example, mm. if you're writing a function, you would start off with the paren fn and the name of the function and then the square brackets, uh, which is a vector, uh, distinguish the uh, the uh, parameters to the function, so it actually does help make it easier to read. And since you know, this more than just lists are important to us these days as a, as a data construct, um, moving vectors and so forth up to a little more first-class status syntactically in the language is also very useful. So, I, well, for those of us who programmed lists for a long time, we don't notice the parentheses much. Anyway. Yeah, true. <laughs> I think the big challenge that people have that aren't familiar with this is that, that the nesting is so important. The nesting implies behavior. Right. And and that is confusing to folks who just haven't – I mean, this is an ancient language by computer standards. It's right. It's one of the oldest languages ever made. Now and 50 years and nesting counting. behavior is something that most people now look at as a cautionary tale. Um. Yeah, there are lots of ways to alleviate that by using um, you know, syntactic forms like lets and so forth to to break up and establish local variables that hold you know temporary values and so on. And and you know, Rich also paid attention to that. For example, one of the most complex um, constructs, for example, would be the conditional construct in Lisp, which has you know lots of extra parentheses. And what he essentially did was look at the most common case, which is uh, uh, Test, uh, result, test, result, test, result, and basically reduce, um, 
an extra level of nesting all the way through that entire construct. He's been fairly consistent about doing that throughout the language, so he's paid a special attention to uh, keeping it as readable as possible compared to some of the older lisps. He chose to make it case-sensitive. Is that still the case in the CLR version? Yes. Case-sensitivity is going to come up and hit you anyway as soon as you start doing interop, unless Mm -hmm. you want to do all your interop uh, case-insensitive. Right. So you might as well go from the start. Uh, No one ever said it was going to be easy. There's certain key things here. you, you know, we were talking about sort of modern functional languages and, and, and ancient functional languages being ones that just had functions. What do you see as the defining characteristic in, in, the, uh, in the modern one? Uh, you're talking about enclosure itself or about the other ones? And, and half well, just in general, functional. functional languages. Like For folks who still haven't got their head around functional language, just the, the main thing about a functional language. Well, I'm, I'm not the best person to ask because I actually tried to avoid functional languages for years. <laughs> um, even though I'm an academic and, you know, we're supposed to have a special affinity for those things. Um, <laughs> I, I tended to prefer the, the extremely practical. So, you know, throw me the C++ and the C Sharp and I'm actually quite happy. Uh, right. But you know, the, the Haskell world and, and related functional languages essentially deal primarily with... Uh, Values that are essentially immutable. The notion of, you know, uh, that an object-oriented language has of, of sort of an object with slots you just keep changing all over the place kind of goes out the door. The notion yeah. of a pure function comes in. A pure function is something that you, when you feed it an input at one point in time, you get an output. You do it another point in time, you get the same output. It is it mm. is purely expressing a function between input and output, mm. not dependent upon anything that's not apparent in the function call itself. Right. Unfortunately. I say, unfortunately, I don't know the functional people necessarily say that, but our world is not strictly functional because things do change over time and, and there right. are processes and so forth that are, make it harder to find expression in purely functional terms. And the folks who have done these languages have done rather extraordinary work to try to figure out how to combine the, the, the pure functional notions with a world that does have side effects in it, like how do you do I.O. and so forth. We're seeing that in the community, in the .NET community, those who are embracing F Sharp mm-hmm. are are you know are not saying that you should use F Sharp for everything. That right. should, you should have islands of functional programming in your applications where appropriate. Yeah. Actually, it was sort of F Sharp that that got me moving back into this this side of the world, and one of the reasons really? I got attracted to Closure. Well, I haven't actually had any time to do it. I got so caught up in Clojure. F Sharp still sitting in the stack someplace. But the fact that that Microsoft is pushing, you know, hardcore functional languages said to me, it's time to start paying more attention again. Um, so that actually was uh, a factor in me starting to look around. Um, I, I kind of got interested in Clojure because, you know, there's lots of stuff going on with dynamic languages. You look at things like, you know, JRuby and Iron Python, there's lots of work in putting dynamic languages on top of, of the virtual machine platforms. Uh, you look at the Erlangs and things like that, there's a lot of concurrency going on. So I sort of had all those things in mind when I was looking around for some new things to do, and I just happened to run across Clojure. And to me, it looked like it had everything I just mentioned. Plus, I got to scratch my list bitch, which has been un- unrelieved for a long time. So... <laughs> Um, the, uh, the, there's a big difference with, in closure, um, among other Lisp oriented languages, which is sequences. They're implemented a bit differently, right? Right. Um, 
one of the things that makes closure interesting uh, is is the fact that it's taken a lot of the basic concepts that were there in the older lists and sort of moved them into uh, a new way of looking at them. One example in terms of sequences would be um, uh, just the basic operations of taking the first item in a sequence and then getting a sequence which is the rest of the items. In an older style lisp, this would have been uh, the car and cutter operations or, or later on a first and rest type operation. And normally those would have been applied really to just uh, lists, which were, you know, uh, consoles. Um, when Rich was designing this, he did, so we're sitting on top of, you know, in his case, JVM, and, and have the full functionality of that platform sitting there. He, he really reconceived a little bit of how those pieces should work. So first and rest now are actually methods in an, in an interface. And any anything that expresses that interface, which is the iSeq interface, uh, ISEQ, um, can participate in in being having first and rest done to it. So, if I take a vector, for example, and 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 have it implement the iSeq interface, well, I can take first and rest of a vector. I can do it with uh, you know any one of a number of data structures. All you need essentially is, is the ability to to treat it as as a as a sequence object. Um, you can. Uh, then take all the work you do in producing other functions that are part of, of the Lisp library that would be built on first and rest, and all of a sudden they become extensible to a whole bunch of new data structures beyond uh, the original list. And if you do this consistently across the language, you get uh, really a lot of leverage on uh, you know a few small algorithms across a large set of data structures. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, whose RAD controls outperform all others. Are you experiencing performance hits when handling millions of records with your Silverlight grid? Have you been frustrated by the amount of XAML code it takes to create a control template? There are so many potential bottlenecks that can drag your app performance. And of course, there's no universal solution for them. The good news is the guys from Telerik understand the complexity of that problem. When building RAD controls for Silverlight, they isolate every probable source of performance loss. Then they apply a respective solution. Through UI and data virtualization, data sampling, and content recycling, RAD controls help you deliver unbeatable performance with your Silverlight apps. You can check out Telerik Silverlight Grid handling 50 million cells as a piece of cake or RAD chart working seamlessly with a million records. Just go to Telerik.com slash Silverlight slash performance for details. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. They truly make this show possible. So one of the things I noticed looking over the specs on Clojure is it implements software transactional memory. Right. And that seems to just work. You know, some of the sam sample apps and things I've seen here where they said, no, STM had a key part in playing with this 100 threads executing simultaneously and consolidating data with no errors. Right. Hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, the whole experience of dealing with STM around this? Is it sort of transparent to you? Well, except I had to take all of Rich's algorithms and implement them. Uh, but, but to an application developer, it is relatively transparent. Let me back up a little bit, because what makes STM really work is, is another aspect, which, which ties back to the functional nature of closure, and that is uh, the existence of persistent and immutable data structures. Uh, a key notion in, in the functional languages is that you know 
objects are values. They don't have a, a structure that, that you pick apart or, or mutate. And um, it's not sort of the, the notion in the object-oriented world, right? An object essentially is this set of fields that you can change values on, and over time you just keep, you know, hacking values in them, and they change. But it's, as you move into looking at concurrency, that becomes problematic because... It's hard to keep a consistent notion of, of the uh, the value of an object over time. Um, so the first step in closure, though, to move it towards being more functional, is the fact that uh, they provide a whole bunch of immutable data structures. In other words, in a, in a, I'll give you two examples. In an old list, um, if you had a, a console which represents the, the head and the tail of, of a list, you could go in and do surgery on those. You can go in and, and hack using Replaca or Replac-D uh, and, and just do surgery and, and replace the pointers in those cells. You can't do that in, in closure anymore. That operation is, is no longer there. You've got a console. That console will never change its head and tail. So if you're holding hmm. on to it, and moreover, what it's pointing to, if they're also immutable, will also never change. So that console can be taken as a value that will never, ever change. Um, if you want to create a new list, well, you create a new console that points to other things that also will never change, and, and that doesn't affect the previous one at all. So if you're holding on to the previous one, you're safe. This value is never going to change. Right. That's easy for consoles, but it gets harder when you move into things like, like vectors. I mean, think of your typical array. You're, you're used to sitting there and hacking any individual you know, cell within the array. Right. The key with vectors and making them immutable and persistent, both things come together. Immutable means if I have a vector in my hand, I know it will never change any value in it. It's essentially a constant. Right. And it's persistent in the sense that if we drive a new vector off of it that has a changed value for one of the cells, the original one is still there and will still have all the same performance characteristics. So I don't pay a price for doing these things. And the idea is if you want a new vector, if you want to change, uh, if you have a vector and you want to change the second element, what you get is a new vector that has the second element that's different from the first. The first one's not changed at all. It's, it's, it's still there. You could substitute records from a database for this terminology as well. It's the same thing you're talking about. The point is, once I retrieve a record, it never changes in the context of that machine. Well, it would be even more so if it never changed in the database itself. Right. I mean, these things do not change at all. Um, right. So if I have a vector in my hand, I know it will that that's one of these immutable persistent vectors. I know it will never change. So any any uh, computation I do on it, uh, you know, I know it, it allows me to be functional, right? If I apply a function to this vector, and uh, I come back a week later and do it again, I'll get the same value back because, um, assuming that the uh, you know the function itself is is functional, because that vector can't change. Now to do this, you need to have good data structures that allow uh, the mutability to be expressed to be able to derive a new vector from an old one without having really bad performance characteristics. So there's a lot of use of sharing, a lot of use of tree structures. Um, there's something called hash array map tries, or trees, depending on how you pronounce that word, uh, attributed to a fellow named Bagwell that, that Rich took and uh, made immutable and, and brought them into as the core. So beyond the consoles themselves, which are trivial, your vectors, your maps, your sets are all built as immutable objects. You want to remove an object from a set. You get a new set, the, the old set with the object right. removed. 
but the old set is still there, and so that you haven't affected anybody else who's who's, who's working with it. No, that means that basically you can treat your data structure objects as as values, and the significance of that comes as you start to move into into concurrency. What object oriented does, as I said before, is it kind of conflates the notion of who you are with what your current state is, um, and what Closure tries to pull apart is the notion uh, to distinguish the notion of, the, of something that has an identity, an entity of some type that takes on a, a sequence of, of values over time. But the values themselves don't change. What you do is you take a different value. That's different from our usual notion of an object, right, which itself mutates. Here, Right, you change the object. Right. Here, you don't change the object. If you have an ob- you know, Fred is an, an entity that you're dealing with. Fred's current value is this object. To change its value, you don't change the object. You give it a new object as a value because the object itself is immutable and can't change. That means if somebody else is holding on to that, you don't have to worry about somebody else being affected by the change of Fred. Fred gets a new one. Well, what if you do have to worry about somebody else not being affected by it? Ah, right. well, that's when you start to move into things like the notions of um, transactions and so forth. So what Closure has is the notion of reference, and there are several different objects that have uh, that are serve as references. So if you think of a reference as basically representing a a, a hole in memory that, that that takes on values, and the values themselves are should be immutable if you're going to do this work. And over time, this this entity Fred, let's say, takes on a succession of, of values. If you're working with individual things, like if you just have a counter, uh, Closure has a has an object called an atom, and and working with atoms, the type of reference, you can just basically say I want to change its value, and uh, it, it, you, you can deal with it as a standalone object. All I want to do is is uh, give it a new value, the new value potentially being calculated from the old value. Okay, that's very easy to do, and we can make sure that it works properly. And it's done by computing the new value from the current value. The problem is, uh, in concurrent operations, is of course you you start to do the computation of the new value from the old value, and somebody changes the the, the value of Fred behind your back. So you need to do that. Well, you can do that without any serious locking on on the user's part by using various uh, compare and swap type operations that sort of hide the details of of uh, spinning or something, uh, uh, spin retries and so forth from you. What the STM does is essentially say, what if I have a calculation that, that needs to deal with several different references at once, and I'm basing computations on several different references. So what you have to do is, if you have, uh, in, in closure they're called refs, and if you want to change what a, what a ref's value is, that change has to occur in a transaction. So if you sit down there and you have Fred as a ref and you want to change his value and you're not in a transaction, it will throw an exception. And that's because refs are by nature um, accessible by more than one thread. Right. Yeah. And what you want to do, of course, is have characteristics very similar to what occurs in a database transaction, which is if if I have to make changes of several variables at once, if I just want to do, you know, uh, you know, add a credit here and subtract a debit over there, to two different variables. What you want is it to be atomic, right? Mm-hmm. You want both changes to go through at once. You want it to be 
isolated also, so that you want both operations to take place in isolation. Nobody else can see them until they both they all go in together at the right point. So STMs essentially try to do that without being in a database. They try to do it uh, yeah. uh, as software transactions in memory, looking here at uh, at doing that. So what happens is if you've got you know uh, account A and account B, and you're doing an operation that involves both of those, you do that inside of a transaction. What happens is if somebody behind your back while you're in the middle of this changes one of A or B's values, you'll detect that at the right point, and you'll end up retrying this particular operation on A and B. Mm-hmm. And software transactional memory that's as done in Clojure essentially uh, codifies that using some very nice technology. The point is it's it's a lot simpler than people run into problems with software transactional memory. A lot of it has to do with sort of the nature of object-oriented programming where things are changing all over the place and you don't know exactly you know, what to look at uh, or, or there's just so much to look at because any object can sort of change underneath you at any time. Right. Here, the only thing that can change is the value of a reference. It's like a, you only have to watch the values of variables. You don't have to look at what's inside those variables. Either it changed or it didn't change. You can detect that without having to dig into the value because the value itself is immutable. It's an interesting conversation. Um, we've talked about software transactional memory quite a bit in terms of the CLR. Uh, the, the parallel team had a, had a project that has just recently been shut down. Yeah, that, that got discussed on the closure group. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it makes sense hearing, you know, that you're, you're answering my questions before I can uh, ask them. Basically, you know, why, why, why is it working in closure? And you know, not working in, on the in the CLR, and essentially you just answered it. I mean, you got a world of objects where anything can change. There's so many more things that can go wrong. Where whereas if you've got immutable objects by default, and uh, everything is uh, the only the only issue is that things can happen on different threads. Right. There, there's no side effects. There's, there's no, no side effects. Simpler implementation. Absolutely. You, you don't have to look inside of objects. You don't have to worry about rolling back changes to objects individually with whatever else might have been going on in that process. Right. All you're doing is changing the what's in a, a couple of set storage locations without having to inspect details inside those storage locations. So it's a much more tractable uh, problem. You don't have the overhead. I mean, this the, the, the criticism of software transactional memory has been you know that that it, it it just slows everything way down, and you know the answer for the STM heads has been, well, add more processors, add more processors. There's a lot of diminishing returns, and I guess, you know, the more processors didn't help. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you don't see that from from the, from the experience people have been talking about in closure. You you just really do not see that here. It's a it's a much more tractable. It's much more limited. The surface area. For what you have to control is so much smaller that you have a chance of succeeding here. Now it is, you know, closure CLR is a CLR language, and in the CLR there are lots of objects. So how it's interesting how how you're marrying the two uh, together. I mean, you you can obviously have refs to. Can you have refs to, you know, .dot net objects Anything. that were created in C, C sharp or VBnet or absolutely. Um, there you have to have discipline. If you're, yeah. if you're going to use the STM or any of these other mechanisms successfully, you have to have some kind of discipline in there, which means you, you kind of have to treat them as immutable in some way, um, at least for the duration of, of the activity that, that you're doing here, mm. or, or use copy semantics or do something to, to help yourself along. 
But if you just sit in there and toss a you know a regular uh, array object into a ref, which you can certainly do, and you just go willy nilly going in there and and uh, you know changing cells inside the array, you know all bets are off at that point. You, you, the, the array is fine; you've got the same array, but the values in it are changing. That's going to change the the functional nature, which affects the the retry semantics of the uh, software transactional memory when you do hit uh, uh you know interference from another uh transaction taking place uh, you have to redo the way that the changes are are specified typically with with refs are uh one type is called alter you you alter a ref and what you do is you uh supply a function and some arguments and you apply the function to the current value of the ref plus the additional arguments to compute the new value and you may have to do that several times. If you get uh, punished by other transactions in the middle of this, you may have to call that function several times. So your um, semantics here depends upon the fact that essentially the function is going to act purely and doesn't have side effects because you're likely to have to call it more than once mm-hmm. uh, to get your operation completed. It's a discipline. Right. Uh, you, and so if you're going to move outside of, of, of the purely mutable data structures provided to you by closure and are going to go into arbitrary things, then you have to have some discipline. Are there other challenges that you had? Uh, did, did you, were you able to make a port 100% or from you know, feature per feature, or are there other gotchas um, that you have on the CLR that you do not have otherwise? Well, I mean, that same problem exists over in the JVM world. I mean, once you, once you move into, into Java objects, the same sure. thing applies. So really you have the same limitations in uh, Closure CLR that you have in Closure JVM? Absolutely. Okay. Still, you are implying that you wrote software transactional memory for the CLR. That's no, I'm implying Rich wrote it <laughs> in Java. <laughs> and, 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 and you and, translated and, and, it. And I translated it. I, I, I will give Rich incredible... I've, I've been translating a lot of his code, i got to say. He, 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 writes, he writes nice stuff. Um, I mean, the whole process of bringing this over from... From the, the JVM implementation, some of it, the, the very first phases was just implementing all these data structures, and that was fairly straightforward. I mean, the, the, the two the two VMs are, are close enough, that, and the languages are close enough that that was fairly straightforward coding for the most part. Where it gets interesting is when you start to do uh, the compilers that, that are sitting on top of all this and, and, and make everything work because the the, uh, you know, the IL underneath it all and the, the difference between how Java handles class files and how you know, the J, uh, CLR handles assemblies mm. really start to, to bite you. Uh, and that's where I spend almost all my time these days. Were you doing a lot of work around the DLR side of things? Because with all the dynamic behavior right. closure, I think that's a challenge to implement against the CLR. Right. Um, when I first started this project, I, I, I decided I, I was nuts because I was... Closure wasn't even at 1.0 yet, so it was under heavy development. The DLR was at zero point something, and mm, right. I had both both a language that wasn't defined and an, and a, an implementation framework that wasn't defined. Yeah. Which is not, not, not <laughs> what could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> um, Sounds like fun. <laughs> uh, but I, I wanted to play with the DLR also because I it, it had gotten you know a lot of play from Microsoft, and I was interested in seeing what it could do. I knew the um, you know the Iron Python and Iron Ruby guys were heading that direction. And by the way, I've gotten some some very nice uh, support from from the DLR and IPython guys. Uh, I'll mention D- Dino Velen particularly, who's been very helpful mm. to me in navigating the world. 
Um, but yeah, one of the things I was trying to avoid a lot at, at the beginning, because I've not done a lot of this, was was a lot of just pure system.reflection.emit work, um, having to do a lot of right. IL hacking. Yeah. Because I've not done a lot of that. Um, so I'm not using all of the DLR even yet at this point. I'm primarily using the expression trees part, which underlies you know a lot of the dynamic expression stuff that's in C sharp, and using the expression trees in there to essentially uh, compile the lisp down on expression trees and then using all the DLR mechanism to end up compiling that down into um, into methods. The advantage of Clojure being hosted, uh, whether it's in the JVM or uh, on the CLR, is uh, a number of things. One is you get to take advantage of all the work in memory management, garbage collection, and so forth. So you don't have to deal with any of that stuff. Right. You can take advantage of all the libraries that are sitting there, so we don't have to deal with all of that. If I want to deal with I.O., I want to deal with networks, I want to deal with the web, yeah. I've got all that just sitting there. Right. But by that token, those are part of the problem because they're not functional. Yeah, so you you, you isolate those as I.O. portions, and, and, and so you, you figure out, you know, okay, there's an I.O. portion. I go in and grab what I need, and then I go off and do my computations, and then I mm. blast it back out again. So mm. you, you modularize right. your, your application, you're probably relatively safe. Yeah. And I.O. stuff is always easy to work on, multi-threaded. Well, what about strings? Do you take advantage of the .NET string type? Yes. Most of the, most of the base data types, uh, things like strings and, and numbers and so forth, all, all devolve down on, onto, the, onto the base platform. Well, it's kind of cool because strings are immutable in .NET. Yes, absolutely. So that must have been a pleasant surprise. Well, it wasn't a surprise, but it was it was it was pleasant. <laughs> Same as Jamie. Yeah. I had I had learned that somewhere along the way. Um, um, so it, when the design of closure makes it actually extremely easy to, to do interop. Um, yeah, some very easy syntactic uh, variants in, in the language that make it very easy to do method calls on objects, to call static methods of classes, to instantiate new objects. It's it's really very clean and fits in very well with the overall syntax of the language. Moreover, it's very easy to do type hints in various places in the code so that you can avoid uh, boxing primitives if you don't want to, mm. or and you can avoid reflection. Like if I if I uh, put the right type hints in and I've got you know overloads on a method I'm trying to call, I can avoid reflection at runtime just by the type hints, uh, selecting it out at compile time. What, um, what would you think is your biggest challenge, or was your biggest challenge in implementing the CLR version? Understanding the compilation model to begin with of closure JVM and just getting inside of, of Rich's head on, on how all that was put together. That was one step. Figuring out you know, a certain portion of it I can take over fairly directly. Now he he's writing everything straight in in, in IL on his side. He's using um, one package to help do the generation, but it's 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 you see opcodes all over the place. Hmm. So part of it was um, sort of looking at what he was doing and translating it all into a sort of a higher level, uh, sort of uh, working backwards here, it was decompiling in, into expression trees. In terms of the expression of my language, hmm. um, the, 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 I'd say the, the three things that were the most difficult. One had to do with the fact that the DLR itself has a limitation that it only produces static methods. So I have to come up with various workarounds because I actually need need uh, instance methods. 
And so I have to basically build, you know, little trampolines all over the place to, to make sure things work properly in there. <laughs> Hopefully the DLR will fix that at some point, but that was a, a point of uh, interest. Um, the mismatch between the Java class and class loader model and uh, the, the use of assemblies in um, on the CLR side definitely provides a mismatch in terms of how uh, code gets handled. And um, the third one is that the the method model is so much more complicated in in uh, the CLR. I mean, in Java, you pretty much got parameters, and uh, the the worst thing you see is um, uh, contravariance of return types when you overload. In .NET land. I've got to deal with ref parameters, you know, in-out parameters. I've got to deal with uh, uh, explicit in instantiation of interfaces. Uh, there's just a, a lot more pieces that I have to deal with and, and think, think through and add, uh, actually add syntactic extensions to over the original closure. So I'm, I'm say I'm not 100% there in all the stuff I've done so far, but I've got it so that I can deal with it on most interfaces that I have to deal with. So. That's those are probably the, the biggest the biggest hassles. You know, we we've sort of danced around this development process here. We talked about the discipline side of things uh, versus the you know, the language essentially protecting you. Uh, and I think you know we've always been able to write multi threaded code. It all started with create thread. You talk about discipline. That's like the scariest kind known to man. Do you see this as the next step to away from needing that kind of discipline that we can just naturally code multi-threaded uh, it's it's more natural it's not that you can't ever not think about it you know uh you you have to know what you're doing you have to you know in some sense it's a, it's a different mindset just to think about how to take what you would normally do by just packing a bunch of object slots and 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 moving to a mindset where you're thinking more functionally you're thinking immutable you're thinking value-oriented you're thinking in terms of transactions so there's a mental discipline that makes it different once you get in that mindset, you're not thinking about things like locks anymore. You're assuming that a lot of that stuff is is, is just totally happening under the surface for you and will be happening right. happening cleanly without a lot of overhead. So it reduces the set of, of surprises and the, and the sort of the, the surface area for disaster that you have to deal with becomes much, much, much smaller. And I, I think it is. That's one of the things I think is very exciting about Closure is how all these pieces really fit together so well to produce a, sort of a, a new approach to doing this type of highly concurrent programming. But are you still declaring the number of threads you want to use, or is that just no, happening naturally? that's happening naturally. Um, you know, when you go off and, and, and start a new... Uh, I mean, there's a number of different mechanisms. For example, there's there's an agent mechanism. If you, if you go off and make a call to an agent, it you just say, you know, do this action on an agent. The agent will be grabbing things out of a thread pool or starting up independent threads. You never deal with the threads yourself. Um, so, I mean, it's certainly possible to go off and hack threads, and it's possible to go off and do locks. There are primitive mechanisms in, in Clojure for doing that. But for right. most, of, most of the stuff, in terms of the examples I've seen, uh, you just don't use that stuff. The, the, the existing mechanisms more than suffice for doing it, so you never see a lock. You never start a thread. Yeah, you don't want to, you, I don't want to see any of that stuff. I don't want it to just happen. Mm-hmm. As long as it happens right. Yeah, right. as long as nothing goes wrong. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, one more thing uh, for me, David, which was, and again, we talked we talked about this briefly, but maybe we need to define very clearly what a uh, a functional data structure really looks like. And I'm thinking in the context of like a database. Are there particular ways for me to build my database that are inherently more functional than uh, than other approaches? Well, uh, I'm trying to think of of, of the, the context in which you're building a database here. Well, if I, you know, the the thing that I got the sense of is you never want to update anything. You never want to change anything. You just want to add new data because you always want to have that point in time where things are the same. So it, to me, it would seem like you'd never update a customer's address. You would write a new address record that had a timestamp that this was the later address. No, when, when you when you start to move out into into the in, in, into the world of side effects, you 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 have to. I mean, a database is a database. You're not going to sit there. I mean, you could design your database to, I guess, to be totally that way. But yeah, uh, but most of us are going to just deal with relational databases in sort of a standard sort of way, which means you, you. I think you can still conceive of most of what you do. And, and, and I mean, we do have a fair amount of experience in thinking about how to interact with a database uh, transactionally, right? Uh, uh, right. That that fits in reasonably well with the notions you have here on on the STM and so forth. Though there's no automatic hooks, I should say, between the STM transactions and database transactions. That, there's nothing automatic there. I mean, at some point, I don't know that we're going to change our necessarily our behavior with respect to traditional databases that much. So if you have to deal with it, you're still going to think of it in terms of grabbing data out, doing computations, and putting data back in. The question is, you know, internally, how do you keep, you know, the various threads of operation you have going against your database from interfering with each other? And there's right. where I think the techniques of closure come in. You still got to deal with the I.O. You still got to get things in and out. Well, then this journaling approach to databases is not that odd. If you look at the way you do sales transactions or, or any kind of balance sheet transactions, you're only ever inserting rows. You never update or delete anything. That's correct. So, you know, that to me seems more functional, that you can always go back to a given point of time and establish a balance. The question is whether that, and that approach is quite performant under load, too. So there, there's lots of merit to, to approaching it that way. I'm just starting to think about how I would work on a database that was running against a program that would be massively multi-threaded and whether it could actually, the database could stand up to that. Right. Well, I mean, there's a lot of work in areas like streaming databases and, and other sorts of things that, that are sort of responding to that. I mean, they are right. virtually write-once, read-many type databases floating around out there. Uh, I, I think, you know, some of the mindset for that is, is very similar to what you're looking at in Clojure. I think, I don't know that a lot of work's been done yet in sort of marrying the two very directly, but I, I suspect you're going to be seeing more of that as, as, as uh, legions of Clojure programmers need to grow well david uh we're coming down to the end of the show is there any last minute things that you want to mention that we didn't cover well go try it out would be the, the basic thing both uh if you're if you're happy in the java world uh, closure.org is the place to go as as the, the source of all things closure um certainly i would like to see more people grabbing closure clr and starting to use it and uh it's. Um, I, I need all the feedback I can get from the community. So, and the Closure CLR, we can get that off of uh, Closure.org as well. Uh, both Closure and Closure CLR are hosted on GitHub. Right. 
so head there and do a search and you'll find them very quickly all right and we'll we'll add links to that on the page well thank you very much david it's been a pleasure and uh, boy we learned a whole lot thanks for uh for inviting me in it's great talking good work on the library and we'll talk to you next time on dotnet rocks .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com Got a transmitter band by the FCC Yes, I'm a, a boy, life is hard